I used to say that the biggest problem with public access to legal materials in the United States was that no one who was in a position to do anything about it uh, actually knew that there was a problem. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts, just north of Boston. My co-host, who's normally with me on the program, Jay Craig Williams, is away today on business, so he won't be joining us. I, of course, write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law, and Craig uh, is the author of the blog, May It Please the Court. Today's program is sponsored by SunTrust, which offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and also by Clio, the web-based practice management program for lawyers, available at goclio.com. Well, today uh, uh, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think is uh, really important and really exciting. Uh, we, uh, the United States, likes to think of itself as a nation of laws, and yet uh, Access to those laws is not always easy to come by. In some cases, uh, control to uh, the publication and distribution of laws is in the hands of private corporations. In other cases, governments are claiming copyright and control. And there's been uh, a lot of talk lately about uh, democratizing the law by putting all of our primary legal materials in the public domain. Uh, this has taken shape as a, a movement that's referred to as law.gov. And over the past uh, six months or so, uh, the law.gov uh, organizers have been holding a series of programs all around the country uh, at law schools and uh, in other locations to explore the issues uh, inherent in uh, in this movement to democratize the law and uh, put together perhaps a plan and a proposal for how that might happen. So today we're going to talk with two people who have been uh, have been both leaders in this movement and who have been leaders in making uh, putting the law in the public domain and making it uh, available to the public for quite a number of years now. Um, Starting with our first guest, uh, I'd like to welcome to the program Carl Malamud. Carl is a technologist, author, and public domain advocate, uh, currently uh, perhaps best known for his foundation, public.resource.org. He was the founder of the Internet Multicasting Service way back when. Uh, during his time with this group, he was responsible for creating the first internet radio station and uh perhaps more notably to legal professionals, for putting the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Edgar database online, and also for creating the Internet 1996 World Exposition. Carl is uh, currently leading the Law.gov effort to bring online all primary legal materials, including legal cases and codes, 
uh, for open public access. So uh, my great pleasure to welcome to the program, Carl Malamud. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. And also joining us today uh, is, a, is an old friend of mine, Tom Bruce. Tom is uh, director of the Legal Information Institute at the Cornell Law School, uh, which mounted the first open access legal website in the world back in 1992. Uh, Tom is an affiliated researcher on the Cornell Faculty of Computing and Information Service. He's been a fellow at the University of Massachusetts Center for Internet Dispute Resolution a senior international fellow at the University of Melbourne Law School and a member of the ABA Administrative Law Section's Committee on the Present and Future of E-Rulemaking. Back when, (laughs) and these are Tom's words, not mine, back when pterodactyls were wheeling around the sky, he wrote the first web browser for Microsoft Windows, uh, and I I can remember that myself. Uh, So welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Tom Bruce. Uh, Bob, it was not my intention to hail you as a dinosaur, but uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> well, you're you're branding yourself along with me, so that's okay. Uh, well, it's I, I'm really excited about having you both on the program because I've I've been following the Law.gov movement uh, from afar. I, I've been watching some of the developments and wishing I could get to uh, some of the meetings you've been having around the country, but. Carl, let me uh, start with you and ask you to give our listeners an overview of what this Law.gov initiative is all about. Well, Law.gov is about an idea, and the idea is that all the primary legal materials in the United States should be available for bulk access. And by bulk access, this means any nonprofit or for-profit group ought to be able to take these legal materials and repurpose them, build a, a better website, build a better citator. So this is partly about innovation, but it's also about citizens being able to read the law. Um, so it's it's not like trying to put West out of business. It's not about building the ultimate legal search engine. Um, those are all downstream activities. This is about government that produces primary legal materials from a water district all the way up to the Supreme Court or, or the executive branch of, of the federal government. Um, if they produce those those primary legal materials, they should uh, do so in, in a way that doesn't cost a bunch of money and is authenticated and provides bulk access to people downstream. And who who is involved in this movement? Who have been the, the people who have been pushing this forward? Uh, I know there have been a number of law schools. There have been some professors. There, there's yourself. Uh, what about, you mentioned West, what about the legal publishers? What about the federal government, uh, the state governments? Are they working on this at all? Yeah, it's been kind of amazing, actually. So rather than, you know, as you know, people like Tom have been, been putting the law online for, for decades and decades. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a, a growing movement of people dedicated to making this material available, both for professional and, and, and professionals and for citizens. So rather than start with, like, a big plan, which is one way to go about this and say, oh, the legal system is broken, you know, here's the answer, we started with a national conversation. So what we've done is we started at Stanford Law School in January and we're going to be finishing next week at the Center for American Progress in Harvard. A total of 15 workshops. Uh, literally hundreds of people have participated in these. And in each of the workshops, we've looked at topics like privacy, 
and the technology. How, you know, what, what, what does it mean to provide bulk access to, to legal materials? What about metadata? What about document IDs? Um, so this is a very simple concept at the top, right, that says our legal materials should be available. And today they're not. There's a lot of paywalls. There's a lot of copyright assertions. There's a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense if you look at the Supreme Court opinions in this area that say we're a nation of laws, not a nation of men. And that means you write it down. And if you write it down and hide it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Um, and so we, we've had this conversation, and that's going to lead to a report coming out early this fall. And the report will simply distill what we heard in these workshops. And there, there's some pretty obvious things that, that come out of this. Um, charging for dissemination of primary legal materials doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, even when you think it's justified, like the PACER system, for example, when you charge $0.08 cents a page for PACER, that means that important public functions like auditing the courts for privacy violations can't be accomplished because you literally have to pony up millions of dollars in order to accomplish that public function. Um, and so that, that's the kinds of implications that, that have come out of this national conversation. Tom Bruce, you've been uh, you at the Legal Information Institute have been working on putting. Uh, public legal materials or putting legal materials in, into the public domain in one form or another, as you say, since 1992. Uh, here we are nearly 20 years later. Is this finally going to happen on a mass scale? I mean, we, are, have we achieved a perfect storm? What's going on now? That uh, Why has it taken it this long to, to, for this conversation to really be moving forward in this way? Well, I used to I used to say that the biggest problem with public access to legal materials in the United States was that no one who was in a position to do anything about it uh, actually knew that there was a problem. And what has changed most radically, I think, in the last few years, uh, largely because of Carl's efforts, but also because of work uh, being done by people with uh, what you would think of, I think, as more political interests in things like government transparency. I'm thinking in particular of the folks at the Sunlight Foundation and others, uh, is that there's a growing realization that the use of primary legal materials is, first of all, a lot more widespread than anyone had imagined. Uh, these are things, for example, that anyone in regulated business uses on a daily basis. Uh, and second of all, that the technology actually enables us uh, to put the stuff out there in ways that are, as, as Carl says, uh, first of all, not detrimental to commercial publishers, uh, and I think not detrimental to legal practitioners. You know, this, this idea that it's all going to somehow turn into a legal version of WebMD, I think, is not uh, not quite correct. I, I think that what we're doing here is something that will, in fact, uh, create business for lawyers rather than, uh, rather than destroy it. But in any case, uh, lots of those things have come together uh, over the last few years to produce uh, what I think is really the capstone on a great many efforts that a great many people have carried out over the years. You know, you mentioned, um, well, you've mentioned the, the private legal publishers. Uh, Carl said earlier, we're not, we're not here to put West out of business. Uh, and yet it, it seems that we're operating under this, this legacy uh, of private publishers uh, controlling access to, uh, to primary legal materials as well as to, to reams of, of secondary and perhaps tertiary legal materials. But uh, how, how has it come to this? Uh, and uh, to what extent are these private publishers going to be either a, a, an obstacle or, or a necessary ally in bringing this about, Carl? 
Well, we backed into this situation. It kind of made sense in the mainframe world uh, and certainly in the print world to be, you know, charging by the book. Um, and the Internet's changed a lot of business models. It's changed uh, business models both for government operations as well as, as uh, for-profit entities that work with the government. Um, I, I think I have been greatly surprised by the kinds of people participating in the of workshop. It's truly been a national movement of uh, people like Tom Bruce and the folks over at Princeton and, you know, Tim Stanley, who created Fine Law for West. Um, but a whole bunch of CEOs have been involved. We're, we're doing a workshop with John Podesta at the Center for American Progress on, on Tuesday of, of next week. And we're going to have Mike Wash, the, the CEO of, of uh, LexisNexis there. We're going to have Ed Walters, the CEO of FastCase. Um, David Curl was at one of our workshops. He's the analyst for Outsell, the Traxxas market. And, you know, he, he demonstrated that kind of the traditional market for legal um, services from big law has been steadily kind of going down, uh, partly as a result of the economy, but, you know, market saturation, and that the true opportunities were in, in breaking open into new markets. Um, so this really isn't about nationalizing the law. This isn't about putting West out of business. This is about making sure everybody's got a fair shot, that there's no unreasonable barriers to, to entry to access these materials in bulk, uh, both for for-profit and, and for, for non-profit um, entities. Uh, the Law Librarian of Congress has been, been heavily involved in the law.gov process. It's actually registered the, the domain name um, so that it's, it's nice and safe there. Uh, but it, it's been a, a broad mix of people who think this is an important issue. Now, remember, the legal publishers, the retailers, as, as along with nonprofits like Tom and, and, and my, my operations, um, we spend a tremendous amount of time just trying to get the raw materials of our democracy to, to work with them, right? It's, it's really hard sometimes to get court opinions or, or to crawl websites that the government puts together. Um, so there's a whole bunch of wasted effort right there. And you can see why some of the, the legal retailers would like governmental entities to do a better job of sourcing their, their work product. There, there are several, diff several different aspects to this. I mean, uh, as, as Carl points out, one of the things that this will do is lower acquisition costs for everybody. Uh, and while it would be naive to say that it would do anything other than force commercial providers into offering a higher level of value add than is available either from the bulk data or from uh, open access providers such as ourselves, uh, it does open uh, a huge number of markets that have never really been addressed because they're price sensitive. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's any question in anybody's mind, for example, that small and solo practitioners don't buy these materials at the same rate that big law does. Uh, and I think we'll see so I think we'll see some prices changing in that market. I think we'll see more products available to small and solo practitioners. I think we'll see much more stuff available for house counsel. Uh, I think we'll see much more stuff available to uh, available to the public from very particular niche perspectives because it's not just that there's a market out there for legal materials it's that there's a market out there for legal materials seen from the perspective of you know fill in the blank uh and a lot of that activity a lot of that market activity activity is going to be enabled by this. And I don't. I, I actually don't think that the commercial publishers will lose by that at all. Well, what exactly are we talking about here? I, mean, I, I know that when I look at, Carl, when I look at your public.resource.org, you're pretty much throwing up uh, raw materials uh, in, in kind of an unprocessed uh, form. Uh, 
and I and I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know that we've we've talked before, and I you know I think you've you've said something along the lines of, of, of basically your goal is to just get it out there and then let others do with it what they will, whether they want to build a search inf- interface or over it or or organize it in some way. But you're just putting up the bulk material, Tom at the at the LII. You're of course. Uh, creating a, a framework and a structure for some of this material and making it uh, easier to use and easier to access. Uh, so what what does uh, law.gov hope to bring about? What What is the model that you would hope to see for primary legal resource material? And let either of you answer that who wants to. Well, Bob, you say that we, we put raw material out there, and that's partially correct. We put raw material out there for others to use, and then we try to get government to take that function over from us. That's really our job at public.resource.org is policy change at, at the national level. Um, and I think what we're going to see is a raft of innovation if, if in fact, um, we can convince senior policymakers in the judicial conference and the executive branch in the White House and, and in the states that this is an important issue. And a really good example of that is the, the Federal Register, um, which was released um, earlier in XML as raw data, and the price went from seventeen grand a year to zero. Right, This is the office of the Federal Register that, that publishes this every day with the government printing office. And so they, they started providing bulk data, and they also have authenticated feeds. There's PDF signatures, right? Um, so you know what you're getting is correct and, and hasn't changed. And that's led to a half a dozen new sites out there that have been repurposing the Federal Register and making it just so much easier to use. Some guys at, at, at Princeton put together FedThread.org, for example, which is a, a notification calendaring mechanism. And three guys out in California put together GovPulse.us, um, which has stuff like a map where you can see you know, what the government's doing around your area. You can see the Bureau of Land Management's about to sell some land in a park near where you are. And... There's a new toxic waste dump that EPA is talking about, and you know things that really affect you in in your daily life. And that's what we want to show is that when government starts producing the bulk data, um, there's going to be a whole raft of of again nonprofit and for profit uses, and there'll be little side effects like democracy and justice um, that are pretty important. Um, you know, today we surveyed 66 um, law schools around the country. Erica Wayne at Stanford Law Library did this, and 63 of these law schools don't let their students access the Pacer database. Right, so our students that are going to major law schools all over the country are unable to peruse the the records of our trial courts because it costs eight cents a page, and the law schools won't let them do it. And and that's that's kind of tragic when you think about it. And Tom, is that how you see it? I mean, do you uh, agree with everything that Carl just said, or do you have a different vision of how this will play out? Well, we we have a slightly different perspective on it, in part because we're among the people who want to play with this stuff once once it becomes available. I mean, for us, there's a behind-the-wall thing, yes. I mean, the purpose is to get bulk data out there, self-published by the government entities that actually create it. And the goal beyond that, uh, and one that is of immense interest to us from a research perspective, is... How you get that stuff to interoperate? I mean, a, a logical follow-on question to the to the vision that Carl, I think, is quite properly articulating there of every law-creating body its own bulk publisher is, okay, so we get all these guys putting stuff together and throwing it up on the web in some way or other. How do we get all that stuff to interoperate? Um, I mean, a smart guy once said at, at the time of the West Thompson merger that lawyers don't buy books. Lawyers buy systems of books. 
Uh, and from our perspective, the, the fascinating and challenging thing about this new world is that we have to figure out how to get this stuff to work together. Uh, and in fact, much of our contribution to the law.gov effort has really been around this question of standards and interoperability and how do we sort of, uh, how do we do things in a way that each individual provider is putting stuff up without a lot of extra burden in terms of standardization, but at the same time getting the maximum result in having their stuff play nicely with the stuff from the court two states over. Well, you know, as, as you say, there have been uh, uh Participants in these programs all along, from from government, from from private legal publishing, from from academia. Uh, I, I don't know whether it's fair to say that that suggests all those different interest groups are are buying into this concept. But what needs to be done now to bring this about? I mean, is, is the devil in the details? These these issues that that you mentioned of interoperability and sorting out privacy questions and that kind of thing, or is there still uh, some sort of a, a major, uh, uh, you know, I guess buy-in required from the U.S. government or from uh, private uh, commercial publishing interests? Uh, what, what's what's the big next step that has to happen here? This is going to require um, national leadership. It's going to require certainly the judicial conference to buy in and, and um, you know, the judges don't participate in things like these workshops, although many have requested private briefings, and I'll be briefing the Ninth Circuit um, uh, in two weeks at their regular business meeting uh, about the law.gov effort. But it's going to require judicial conference action. It's going to require congressional action. Um, and a lot of this is in the institutional ownership kinds of issues. Is this important for the government to be doing? Um, Tom talked about how we're going to need standards for interoperability. There's no entity in the federal government worrying about those kinds of standards, uh, nor are they working very effectively with groups like Tom's. I know Tom works um, and, and Cornell works with the Office of the Federal Register and has been assisting them in, in doing their XML and um, getting the Code of Federal Regulations up and running. But um, until recently, there's been no bodies like the Administrative Conference of the U.S. or the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts worrying about these issues of how do you do digital signatures and privacy scans and, and interoperability of documents and, and metadata. And what we're saying in, in this report that's going to be issued early in the fall is, is that these are issues the government should be paying attention to. Um, and they, they will have some monetary implications, and so it's going to require Congress to pay attention. And it's going to have to apply down to the states and the municipalities, and it's a big country. And so I think that also requires congressional leadership, but I think it requires um, executive branch leadership. And our hope is to lay out enough of a broad consensus that former constitutional law professors, like the current president of the United States, might might look at the issue and say, this is important and and we, we should take a stand. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is so odd about the world of legal publishing in many ways, Bob, and, and, and you know this as well as anyone, is how quickly this ramps up uh, into questions like, well, you know, what about the separation of powers and, and, and what about judicial in, in independence, which in, in, this, in the context of something like data standards can often look like judicial orneriness. Uh, you know, who, who can tell a judge what to do about how this stuff gets out there? And, and people are quite naturally and properly suspicious of things like standardization, because it's all too easy to sort of mistake that for telling people what they can write or what they can say and so forth and so on. And, and so, so the history of standardization efforts in particular has not been 
uh, by and large, a terrific one. And as Carl says, it is going to take a fair amount of concerted action from government to decide, well, wait a minute, the benefits of this, and I would stress the economic benefits of it, uh, are going to outweigh uh, or, or, or make all the difficulty worthwhile. Uh, I mean, if you think about what a business-enabling phenomenon it is for people to be able to find and read federal regulations directly, people in small business and, and that sort of thing, uh, I mean, it, it's just a, it, it's a tremendous win. Uh, and I think it does justify the effort. Right. It's powerful. We, we need to take a short break. We will be right back with Carl Malamud and Tom Bruce to talk more about Law.gov in just a second. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Keep up with the fast pace of the legal profession. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all of our great legal podcasts. They're free. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, I am joined by Carl Malamud, a technologist, author, and public domain advocate, currently known for his foundation, public.resource.org, and also by Tom Bruce, the director of the Legal Information Institute at the Cornell Law School. Uh, Tom, what about, uh, we're talking a lot about the federal government here and the federal judiciary. Uh, What about state governments. Uh, I know that there are a number of states that continue to claim copyright in their primary legal materials, or at least in some some of their primary legal materials. Uh, where do the states uh, fit into this overall effort? Oh, I think, I mean, they're obviously a very important part of it. Um, I cannot recite, as Carl probably could, uh, the number of the number of states right now that are asserting copyright in this stuff. But, but clearly, uh, 
as you move closer and closer to, to, to where people live, so to speak, uh, it becomes even more important that they have access to this material. And you find that while in general, uh, well, states vary hugely in, in, in how well they've dealt with this. There are some really exemplary ones out there, Ohio, Oklahoma. Uh, there are others that are, are, are not so much so. Uh, where they have done very well, I think, is with, uh, and, and this is a, a very fuzzy line, with what we would consider e-government stuff, in which citizens are uh, are interacting with, with state government for things like licensure and dealing with the Department of Motor Vehicles and so forth and so on. I mean, they've, re- they've really led the way on that stuff. Um, they've done a little less well uh, below the level of the highest state courts. Uh, but on the other hand, most of the statutes and regulations are out there. So it's, you know... You, you look across 50 states, and you, you can find pretty much anything you want to see. But the the, the point is that the further you, the further you get down uh, in the hierarchy of government, the, the closer you get to where people live, uh, and the need for access becomes all that much greater. Same is true at the county and municipal level. I think I think I got the number of 21 states uh, out of out of something I either read or heard from Carl. Uh, Carl, is that is that about where it stands right now to claim some copyright in their materials? So the National Inventory of Legal Materials is a grassroots effort that the law librarians of this country have have started, and it has been heavily endorsed by the American Association of of Law Libraries, who has been been helping to assist in in getting national groups up. Um, Some preliminary results from that national inventory show that at least eight states assert strong copyright over their state statutes, right, their laws. Um, And it looks like 21 states assert copyright over their administrative regulations, right, the the equivalent of OSHA regulations, but at, at the state level. And, you know, the most important Important laws that affect our daily lives are often our public safety codes, building, electrical, fire, plumbing codes. And every one of those has a copyright assertion on them. Um, and that's really the thing that if you're trying to check up on your electrician to see if he repaired your home up to code, you, you kind of need to be able to read that stuff. So you've had this series of meetings that started in January, and that will be culminating, as you say, with the uh, programs at the American Progress uh, Center for American Progress, and then at Harvard Law School uh, in a week or so, uh, I guess. Um, and uh, in, and then what happens? Uh, are, are you going to be creating a, a report out of all this? Uh, will there be uh, legislation filed with Congress? What what what? How do you put all this stuff together and, and present it? Uh, to whoever it needs to be presented to, Carl. So June 15th, next Tuesday, is the Center for American Progress workshop, and that's going to be actually simulcast live on the Internet. And um, if you go to AmericanProgress.org, um, you'll be able to see we, we have a tremendous lineup. Uh, Professor uh, Lawrence Tribe is going to be speaking, and there's um, three or four people out of the executive office of the of, of the president and, and, you know, the CEO of LexisNexis and Tim O'Reilly and Vince Cerf from the Internet World, uh, Paul Verkyle, the new chairman of, of the administrative conference, uh, and, of course, John Podesta, um, former chief of staff of the White House and, and was chairman of the um, of the presidential transition effort. What's going to happen next is we're going to compile the results of these workshops and um, issue a report, and that's going to be in early fall. Uh, there's already a letter from the Federal Trade Commission asking for a copy of the report to be deposited to their attention. Um, same thing from the United States Senate. Um, we suspect other, other groups are going to want briefings and copies of the report. And there will certainly be some recommendations in there for for some options that government could take as far as actions. 
Um, and then it's going to be another year of going around and telling people, hey, you know, we had this national conversation and a lot of people weighed in and, and here are some of the, the recommendations that came out of, out of that process. And, you know, it takes a while to do things, but uh, congressional action would certainly be necessary. Um, national leadership is the big one. And so we're going to spend a lot of time going to places like uh, American Association of Law Libraries and American Bar Association and, and you know, conferences of, of, you know, state courts and, and clerks and reporters and, and IT professionals and, and trying to see if maybe we can make some progress on getting some of the, the basic principles advanced. Well, regrettably, uh, we're almost out of time here. Uh, before we conclude the program, I would like to give each of you an opportunity to give your closing thoughts on this topic. And I also uh, would invite you to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you, either uh, a website or your uh, contact information, whatever you choose to do. Uh, and uh, since we just heard from Carl, let's let's hear from Tom first. And, and then okay. we'll come back uh, to Carl. By way of follow-up, you can you can always find us as you've been able to for the last uh, 18 years or so at uh, www.law.cornell.edu. I, I guess the one thing I would say is that for me, uh, this represents the culmination of a good many years' uh, work in this area. I think it's tremendously exciting, uh, and I think it's a tremendously empowering thing for both the profession uh, and the public. And I would urge everyone to get behind it. And, Tom, how can people find, follow up with you? Uh, best way to follow up with me is simply via the contact form on the website or by my email address, which is tom.bruce at cornell.edu. And, uh, Carl, your final thoughts? Well, I would certainly encourage people on Tuesday, if you have an interest in, in Law.gov, to, to go to AmericanProgress.org and, and um, view the workshop. Uh, you can always find me at public.resource.org, and my email is Carl at media.org, M-E-D-I-A dot O-R-G. I kept that domain name after I stopped being a uh, radio, radio DJ. So. <laughs> Sounds good. And, and you get the last word. Any, any any further thoughts, Carl, that you want to add to our discussion? Well, you know, this is uh, people like Tom Bruce and Tim Stanley and others um, have had a vision for 20 years of the law being available for everybody. And it's been tremendously exciting to work with people like Tom and, and his colleagues all across the country that, that really have been trying to make legal materials available both to the profession and, and to the rest of America. And I think it has some profound implications for how our system of legal education works and uh, for how our democracy functions. So I, I think it's an important effort. And Tom's also going to be speaking at the Harvard program. And I know Tom's, Tom's uh, colleague, Peter Martin, uh, co-founder at the uh, Legal Information Institute, is, is speaking at the American Progress event as well. So uh, our listeners are, are encouraged to tune in and listen to that program, as Carl suggests, which they can find at AmericanProgress.org. Uh, this is uh, tremendously important work, and uh, I applaud you both for your, your efforts in this. And uh, Perhaps we can come back and revisit this uh, next year as, as uh, efforts move forward and uh, the report gets finalized and, and find out, uh, get an update at that point. We'd love uh, to. Uh, yeah. Th thanks to both of you for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate your, your being with us and sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Uh, a reminder to our listeners that uh, you can now get CLE credit for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer by going to our uh, home base at thelegaltalknetwork.com and uh, clicking on the link for West Legal Ed Center there. 
And uh, you can also find us in the uh, on iTunes uh, in the podcast library there. Thanks for listening this week. We will be back next week, uh, and perhaps Craig Williams will be back with us at the time as well for another great legal topic. Look forward to seeing you all then, and thanks again to our guests. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.